Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. I want to ask you today, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them and turn with me to Revelations chapter 2 for this morning's message. But while you're turning in your Bible, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, the words will be on the screen this morning. While you're turning there today, I want to begin with a brief word of maybe explanation, maybe even a word of disclaimer uh, in some ways. The message that we're going to hear today and the context of what we're talking about is a very sensitive subject. We're gonna look at a church in the book of Revelations, frankly, that was very corrupt, and they were corrupt in one primary way. They were corrupt in their view of and in their practices regarding sex. I share that up front before we open God's word for the simple fact that you may have young children in the room, and if you do, you might want them to be involved, especially in children's ministry today. I also share that in the context of our culture because everything we're about to hear is completely against the culture in which we live. In fact, much of what we're gonna read about is gonna expose a lot, of, a lot of lies and a lot of fool's gold that the enemy's selling in our world today. But anytime you talk about the nature of sex the way that God does today, it brings up a lot of sensitivities. The fact of the matter is today, most every single one of us here today have been impacted in some way, shape, or form by the hurt, wounds, and the dysfunction that sex can bring. It's not that sex is a problem, it's that Satan's lies are a problem, and the way that he's perverted it has wreaked all kinds of havoc in our lives and in the world. Some of us here today are still dealing with guilt and maybe even shame from sinful decisions that we ourselves have made in this matter of sin. There are some of us here today, frankly, this message may, may bring us some areas that are hurt and, and, and areas of wound because not of sinful decisions that we made, but of frankly evil things that were done to us against our will. And there are also many of us here today who still deal with the hurt and maybe even the raw emotions of sinful decisions that other people's made that had nothing to do with us and yet those decisions have significant impact in our life. I share that with you up front to say, Today is gonna to be a sensitive message, but as we study God's word, one, I wanna remind you that you're not alone. Most of us, I have experienced the pain and the challenges and the hurt that come from sexual sin. But I also wanna remind you, not only you're not alone, but the Lord is greater than this. God has offered a way for us to be forgiven, for us to experience his grace. God has offered a way even for things that have been done against us for us to, be, to experience healing and wholeness in Christ. And so my hope and prayer today is that you will leave here today not with deeper wounds, but you will leave here today knowing by God's grace that you're forgiven and, and on a path to healing and on a journey of, of complete peace and deliverance in your life. So let me just say right up front before we even open God's word, at the end of this service today, if there is any way we can minister to you, I wanna encourage you to begin by reaching out to one of our prayer team members. This week, if you would like to, please reach out to us as pastors here in the office. You can fill out that care request card. We would love to minister to you because we believe that God wants you to live in a place of freedom, in a place of forgiveness, and in a place walking forward in victory. I don't want Satan to have a foothold in any of our lives in this area any longer. So let's join together for God's glory that we can have victory, amen? Revelations chapter two this morning, if you would take God's word with me and look there, we continue on in a sermon series entitled, Can You Hear Me Now? Of course, this sermon series title is not an advertisement for a cell phone commercial. Uh, please understand that. It, it's given from the words of Jesus. At the end of every single one of these letters to the churches, Jesus will make this statement. So he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Jesus understood in that day and in like our day, there are often times that we are looking, there are often times that we are hearing, but we're not really getting it. We're not really understanding it. And so even though he declared a clear message, that doesn't mean that the people actually received it. 
So can you hear me now? It comes from that thought that Jesus is offering us a message that will bring hope and will bring healing, will bring forgiveness and bring grace, but we've got to respond in a way that shows that we've heard it, that we've accepted it as his word. Today we come to the church in the city of Thyatira where we begin to discover something very sobering about this church. It was a corrupt church. Now I would remind you today that I imagine that every single one of us have lived long enough to know that not everything is as it appears to be. There are many things in the world that might be corrupt. We might look at a business or a businessman with unethical uh, perspectives and shady dealings behind closed doors that we know are not appropriate, and we might say, that's corrupt. We might look at a government that abuses its power and manipulates the people, and we might say, that's corrupt. Surely there would be no corrupt governments in our world today. Maybe it's at the same time, we might even look at people and we might say that they outwardly profess something, but inwardly something is different. And we might even say of people that they are corrupt. Jesus himself said that. In Matthew chapter 25, or I'm sorry, chapter 23, Jesus was speaking of the Pharisees. They were the religious people who put on such a good exterior appearance, such a form of religion that they thought they were good. But listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. In other words, Jesus looks and says, listen, you had this outward appearance that everything is good and grand and glorious and wonderful, but behind the curtains, at the heart of the matter, there are things that are terribly wrong and even corrupt. Well, the same words that Jesus spoke to the Pharisees, sadly, could be spoken to the church at Thyatira. And frankly, I can't help but to wonder if these same words can't be spoken to the big C church in America today. Today, if you look with me at Revelation chapter two, I'm gonna ask you to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Jesus saved the longest letter and the most words for the smallest city of the entire ancient world of these seven churches of Asia Minor. The message to Thyatira, listen to what Jesus says in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this, I know your deeds and your love and your faith and your service and your perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. She teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear to hear, morning, and I thank you for this time together. Lord, we recognize today that the message that we have read already from Jesus to the church at Thyatira, it is sobering and convicting and very confrontational, even in our culture today. So give us ears to hear. I pray, Lord, where it's needed that you'd bring conviction of our sin, where it's needed, would you give comfort and healing where there's been brokenness. And I pray it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. God bless you. you. May be seated this morning. The corrupt church. Here in Thyatira in Asia Minor, Thyatira was the smallest city of all the cities represented by these seven letters. 
Frankly, there was nothing really significant that stood out about Thyatira. The one major thing of emphasis perhaps would be that they were primarily known for a plant that produced a dye that was a purple in color. As a result of that, they would often, people would come to that place to get this dye so that they could make purple garments and linens, especially for people of royalty. If you remember in Acts chapter 16, there's a lady by the name of Lydia. She's a seller of purple. Guess where she's from? She's right here from Thyatira. Apart from that in the ancient world, the only thing that Thyatira was known for is that it was a military outpost intended to protect the city of Pergamum. In fact, Alexander the Great had soldiers that largely populated the area and began to build up the area. Thyatira was not known for their entertainment. Thyatira was not known for their wealth. Thyatira was not known for their sports. Frankly, many of the things that characterized most of the other cities of Asia Minor were not true of Thyatira. They were basically a military outpost. And yet in the midst of that place where they didn't have all these other things, they had plenty to do because Satan found ways to take their idle time and use it to rob them of their devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ to fill their time with their own personal pleasures. And unfortunately, what was happening in the culture also began to happen in the context of the church, the body of Christ, the church at Thyatira. As we study this letter, I want us to see this morning four things that Jesus says. Four things about Jesus that he reveals in this letter. If you're ready to learn, would you say, all right. First thing I want you to see this morning is simply this. It is the commendation of Jesus. As Jesus does in every other single one of these letters, he begins with words of praise, words of encouragement, words that he is commending them for. Jesus, of course, has something important to rebuke. He has something to address. And yet he starts with these words, if you will, of grace and compassion. He's speaking out to recommend and identify several things in their church. So we see them loud and clear in verse 19. He says, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your servants, and your perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. Let me illustrate that for just a moment. First, he commended their works. The word here when he says their deeds just means their general activity. This was a busy church. This was not a church that was dead. This was not a church that was lifeless. This was not a church that had no activities, nothing going on. They had lots of things going on. They likely had a ministry outreach to the community. They had some sort of benevolence program. Maybe they had a ministry to the soldiers that were there in the local areas that we would consider like a military base. Jesus commended them for their works. They were full of activity for the Lord. Jesus also commended them for their love. I know your deeds and your love. I wanna remind us this morning that everything we do and should be a defining principle of our life as Christians should be done in love. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am, what's the next word? Nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Jesus said the chief characteristic of those who are followers of Jesus in John chapter 13 is this, by this all men would know that we're his disciples if we love one another. They had love for the Lord and for one another. Not only to commend them for their actions and their love, but also for their faith. They had a genuine conviction that Jesus is the Lord. They've got to live for him. They had a genuine conviction. Hebrews chapter 11 reminds us that it is impossible to please God without faith. This church pleased God by living by faith. They were also commended for their service. And the word for service here in this moment means individually the believers. No spectators just sitting around. Nobody was sitting on their hands. They didn't just come to church to watch. No, they came together, every single believer recognizing, I have a part to play in this body called the church. God has given me gifts. God has given me experiences. God has given me abilities that are not meant merely for me. They're meant to glorify him by edifying and building up the body. And every single believer was doing their part. That is something to be commended in the church. In addition to that, they were commended for their perseverance. Experiencing financial blessings like some of the other churches in the region, they had a never, never, never quit mentality. They are persevering, they're not giving up, they're not backing up, they're not shutting up. They're doing exactly in that context of service and perseverance what God wanted them to do. And finally, Jesus commended them for their growth. He literally said to them, your deeds of late are greater than at first which means all these other things were not only present in the church, they were growing. There were more activities. 
There was more love. There's more faith today than there was yesterday. There are more people using their gifts for God today than there were yesterday. They're continuing to persevere. And to be honest with you, it sounds like a great church. I mean, think of this for a moment. I realize many of us have been in this community for a long time, but some of you have recently moved here. Imagine for just a moment, you move to a new town. And in moving to that new town, you begin to look for a new church, a new body of believers to fellowship with. And you go to visit on that first Sunday and you begin to look through the news and notes of the worship guide and you see this opportunity and that opportunity and this program and this ministry and you're like, man, there's a lot going on here. And then you look around the people who welcomed you when you came in and who shook your hand and you see the way people talk in the lobby afterwards and you're like, you know what? These people really love each other. I mean, this is genuine. They genuinely love each other. And then you hear the preacher and the preacher's preaching the Bible and you're like, man, they believe the Bible. Surely they've got faith. And then you begin to realize and look around, oh, look at all the people serving with the, the ushers and the hospitality team and the children's ministry team and even the parking lot team. My goodness, there's a lot of people serving. And man, they're persevering. Look at how faithful they've been in the midst of their history and all these. There's a lot of things that you could look at in a church like this and think, this is the place to be. This is the perfect church. This church has everything going for it. But I remind us this morning that no church is a perfect church because we live in an imperfect world and every church is made of redeemed, yes, but imperfect people. In every church, there are areas that we need to grow. And in every church, there are areas that we need to address for the Lord's sake and for his glory. But at times, there are also things within the church that can be terribly wrong. Well, what do you do when something is going contrary to what God has spoken? If Jesus is the head of the church and we're to be living for his glory and honor, what happens if there's a part of the church that's not glorifying him? Well, in that moment, there has to be what we see next, a confrontation. We see the confrontation of Jesus. Now, I have to confess to you today that there's nothing about this that I love preaching about. There's nothing about this that I think that the believers at Thyatira enjoyed hearing, but I'm reminded there are times that there are things in our life that need to be confronted. Some of us don't like confrontation. Some of us don't like conflict. But there are times, just like going to a doctor, if you know that something's wrong internally, you go to the doctor and you share all that's going on. You're not hoping to get what you want to hear. You're wanting to get the truth. Here's what I'm experiencing. Here's what I'm facing. Doc, help me understand what's wrong. Because the reality is we know there can be no healing. There can be no future. There can be no health unless we diagnose the source of the problem. Thyatira was busy as they could be. Looked good on the outside. But Jesus next comes with a word of confrontation. We see it best summarized in verse 20. Here's what he said. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now I wanna remind us today how Jesus introduces himself in this letter. Jesus didn't just merely say, hello, I'm the son of God, I have a word for you. When Jesus began, he said, I am the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. Now that imagery is meant to be a sobering imagery because what Jesus is saying is this, I see and I know everything. Yes, you've got an outward appearance that you're religious and you're good and there's faith and all these different things, but I want you to know, even behind the curtains, at the heart of the matter, I see every thought of the heart, I see every motive and intention, I see it and know it all because I'm looking with eyes like a flame of fire. I remember when I was a kid, many times our family would go to the Gatlinburg, Tennessee Pigeon Forge area. Anybody ever been there? Not, oh yeah, got a, got a, got a woo-woo holler in church. Oh yeah, all right. I've been there many times. Well, growing up, I remember many times going to a small museum that's tucked away in the middle of the, I think the Gatlinburg area called Christus Gardens. 
Many people have been to Gatlinburg and Pigeon Forge hundreds of times and never even heard of this place. But Christus Gardens was put together and designed by an artist who had an incredible experience by coming to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. What he did then was he created this museum basically of wax figures. And through every single room, there are wax images of the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Pretty incredible. In fact, I think one of the last scenes is his depiction of what he thinks the marriage supper of the Lamb is gonna be like in the future. Pretty cool. But I remember as a kid going into this place and when you get to the final room, you open the door, you go into this area and it's a room about this size. And in the middle of that area, there's a large marble slab that has been etched and carved out. It is a depiction of what the artist thinks Jesus looks like. It's the face of Christ. But there's something super cool about this carving. What's cool about it that I remember seeing as a kid is this. No matter where you would stand in the room, it would look like Jesus' face would turn to face you. So if you went to the far left, Jesus' eyes were on you. If you were in the middle, Jesus' eyes were on you. If you went to the far right, his eyes would follow you there. And I remember as a kid thinking, this is so cool, until... One day I was in a situation that I should not have been in and my mom just suddenly made this statement, Matthew, I want you to remember something. Jesus is watching you. And I remember in that moment for whatever reason that the image of that statue and those creepy eyes following me all around that room all of a sudden spooked me out, okay? There were many times, no exaggeration, through my high school years and different things when I was in situations that frankly were not the wisest situations and it would almost be like that still small voice of the Holy Spirit saying, I'm watching you. The reality is Jesus says, listen church, I want you to know something. I am watching you and I know all things. And so we remember in verse 23, here's what he says. He says, I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. By the way, he hasn't changed He's still searching the minds and hearts of every single one of us here today and even those listening online. Three things Jesus confronted about them. Number one, he confronted their satanic beliefs. He confronted their satanic beliefs. Somebody said, you mean to tell me that a church can have satanic beliefs? A Christian can believe things of the devil? Absolutely. Absolutely. The reality is I don't know or don't think that they understood that they were believing something that was satanic, but Jesus speaks to confront it. I remind us this morning that Revelation chapter 12, verse nine describes Satan as this. He is a serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. One of the things that makes him such a powerful deceiver is how he does so. His aim is not merely to get you to throw out the truth because he knows that will never work. So instead, he tries to pervert the truth, to distort the truth, to twist the truth so subtly that it's difficult to discern what is true and what is not. Maybe perhaps with some young people along the way, you've played the game, two truths and a lie. Anybody played that before? Two truths and a lie. You give three statements, two that are true, one that's a lie, and then the group has to discern which one they think is a lie. Well, Satan does that all the time. He gives us all sorts of information, all sorts of thoughts, all sorts of opinions, all sorts of beliefs, and he sells it all as true. And the reality is some are true and many are complete false. He does that to distort the truth. Satan, for example, twisted the truth with Eve when he convinced her that God was just holding out on her by not allowing her to eat of the forbidden fruit. Satan is so arrogant that when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew chapter four, he didn't just throw out the truth. No, he took bits and pieces of the truth and then he twisted it and tried to sell it to Jesus as a package to buy, trying to get him to fall. And all three of those times, Jesus, of course, exposed the truth by quoting the word of God and therefore he walked forward in victory in every single one of those moments. In Thyatira, Satan did the same thing. He took a little bit of truth and he seasoned in with it lies, and deceptions, things that were false and misleading. Why? Because he's a perverter and a twister of the truth. He did that in Fire Tower in a very clever way. He did that through a teaching of a woman. In fact, the Bible says specifically of her that there was a woman in Thyatira who called herself a prophetess. Interesting to note that God did not call her a prophetess. God did not call her or give her a message from him, but she claimed to be a prophetess. 
Hey, I'm a servant of God. I have a message from God. There's something that God has shown me, that God has taught me that I must relay to you. But Jesus specifically calls her something interesting. She calls herself the prophetess, but Jesus calls her Jezebel. Now, I don't think that is her literal name. In the Old Testament, there was a woman by the name of Jezebel who married King Ahab. King Ahab, though he belonged to the people of God, married a pagan woman and brought her to be his queen, Queen Jezebel. In the context of Jezebel's life, Jezebel misled the people of God. Jezebel tempted the people of God to turn to idols and all sorts, frankly, of immoralities. Jezebel, in the midst of that, not only did that, but she promoted the worship of Baal, and then she tried to kill the prophet of God, Elijah. In other words, Jezebel is the epitome of wickedness in the Old Testament. In fact, I would encourage you today, if you have a daughter born to you this year, please do not name her Jezebel, all right? Naming her Jezebel would be like someone naming their son Judas or Lucifer. What we're seeing here is Jesus is saying the epitome of wickedness is taking place. This woman's calling herself a prophetess. She's teaching things and the people are eating out of her hand. They are accepting it. In fact, later on in the text, he tells us specifically about the deep things that she taught. In other words, it is most likely in this case that this woman has risen to power within the church. And what she's saying is this, I have a new truth. I have a new deep thing that God has revealed to me. God has given me this word. God has given me this understanding. Maybe there's a new scientific discovery. Maybe there's this new explanation. There's this new mystery that I have unraveled that God wants me to declare to you. And in the name of deep things of the Lord, people were buying the deception that she was bringing. Can I just remind us for just a moment? We as followers of Jesus need to be cautious of pursuing the quote unquote deep things. So often we might get to a place where we'd say, man, I just wish I had some other deeper truth. I wish I had some other deeper experience. Please understand, Jesus is enough. When you get to the place where you feel like you are not content and settled in knowing Jesus and studying his word and living for him, I'm telling you, you are putting yourself in a very dangerous place. Because if you're seeking deep things simply for the sake of your knowledge, simply for the sake of your understanding, or simply for the sake of your own experience, please understand, Satan can manipulate you and deceive you. If you're merely seeking an experience, he can give you one every single time. So we need to make sure in the process of that, if we're experiencing some deeper experience or some deeper truth, we need to ask ourselves, is this exalting Jesus or is this exalting me? Is this helping me grow in Christ-likeness or is it taking me away from Christ-likeness? And the answers to those questions will likely reveal the source of those, quote, deep things. Here in Thyatira, we don't know what those wrong beliefs were. We don't know what these deep things were, but what we do know is this. They were sexual in nature. How do we know this? Because it led them to all sorts of sexual immoralities and perversions. And mind you, all of this was done under the banner of God. Now, now, let me illustrate that for just a moment. And I am not trying to be harsh, but let me illustrate that even in our day today, a common way that the enemy has gained a foothold in churches and in the lives of Christians that are deceiving and manipulating many. For example, there is much today that is being justified and condoned in the name of love. After all, they would say, for example, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8, love conquers all. So, as some would argue today, if you have love for one another, since love is from God and it's the greatest of all the virtues, then you can do whatever you want and you can do it all in the name of love. Love who you want to, be with who you want to, do whatever you want to, and give God praise for it because love comes from him. And therefore, anything and everything under the sun is fine so long as there is love. Some of you are sitting here thinking, Pastor, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. But can I say to you, that is the exact argument that one of the most popular evangelical denominations in our country right now is using to condone homosexuality and to condone sexual relationships outside of the context of marriage. Even in this day today, just a, 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 after the memorial service at Bridgewater College, I had the opportunity to sit down with a, 
uh, at JMU with the officers from Bridgewater College. I had the opportunity to sit down with a group of people over a meal and there was a pastor from that very denomination who's from Africa and he's been here for several years. And I said, brother, how are you? And I, we built a relationship because his name is Pastor Matthew. And, uh, but in his tongue, it's Matthew, Pastor Matthew. And so we talked for a long time and he said, I'm so grieved, I'm so grieved. And I said, tell me what you're grieved over. And he began to share and unpack what he's dealing with in the context of his denomination. What I'm saying to you is that simply put is this, the enemy is still trying to do all that he can to twist everything that he can in regards to sex. And what, what largely this brother was saying to me was, in the name of love, we are basically telling our people, you can be who you want to, you can be with who you want to, you can do whatever you want to, regardless of what God has spoken about marriage and his plan. What should I do was his question for me that day. And as a brother, first thing we need to do is pray. And we talked for a long time about that. Satan has been so effective in his distortion of this truth because he knows that sex is a gift from God. God gave sex as a gift to be enjoyed and to be experienced and embraced in the context of a marital relationship between one man and one woman as husband and wife. That is God's plan. There are many perversions of it and there are many pains that you will experience when you try to go another way. But God's plan is loud and clear, one man with one woman in the context of a marital relationship. Knowing the pleasure that it brings, Satan comes to all to offer his perversion to say, listen, you deserve this pleasure. If sex was wrong in this context, it wouldn't feel so good. You deserve to experience this. You deserve to be able to do whatever you want. You deserve to be with whatever sex of person you want to be. Nobody will ever know. You can have your fun in the process. Live your life for yourself. But as temptations are a perversion and a lie that will eventually be exposed at great cost and consequence. Listen to what Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, said about the context of God's plan for marriage. Proverbs chapter five, verses 15 through 18. When you understand the context of these verses is specifically dealing with sex in the context of marriage between man and woman, frankly, the imagery is a little graphic. Listen to what Solomon said. Specifically speaking to men, drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. What he's saying is the context of sex is that it's intended for the marital relationship between husband and wife. But so often Satan will come to us to tempt us just like he tempted Eve. And he'll say, listen, this is, God's just holding out on you. He doesn't want you to experience this other good thing. He didn't want you to live life to the fullest. He doesn't have your interests at heart. And then there are times that Satan comes to deceive us like he did David. And he says, listen, you can do whatever you want. Nobody will ever know. No, I know will ever know. And it'll be awesome but they're all a deceptive lie from Satan. Let me explain to you for just a moment, and I'm gonna give them as quickly as I can, and we've gotta move on. But somebody will hear this today and say, so pastor, you're saying to me that sex is intended between one man and one woman in the context of marriage. That's exactly what I'm saying. Many young people hear that, like I used to hear it growing up, and what they hear basically the preacher saying is, don't do it. But let me explain to you why. Why is this God's plan for your life. Five reasons why, and I'm gonna say them quickly. We can talk about them later if you've got questions. Number one, simply put, because this is God's plan for his divine purposes. God created us male and female. He created us differently and uniquely for his purposes. And in the context of that, he gave us the gift of sex. In other words, God is most glorified through this gift when we receive it as such and express it in ways that are pleasing to him. In fact, when we recognize this is a gift from God and we utilize that gift in ways that are pleasing to him for his purposes, it actually becomes an act of worship where we're honoring and glorifying God. Secondly, this is God's plan for our personal pleasure and enjoyment. That is not to say that sex outside of marriage is not pleasurable, at least for a season, but most sex outside of marriage ends with profoundly deep wounds. It is in the context of marriage where there can be absolute trust, vulnerability, acceptance, and the deepest of enjoyments. 
Number three, why? Because this is God's plan for even peace in your marriage. Outside sexual experiences can create problems in our heart, mind, emotions, and therefore even in our marriage. It often causes insecurity, shame, fragile trust, and great difficulties in being completely honest and vulnerable. In fact, in the context of marital counseling, oftentimes people deal with issues that they think are dealing with the present when the reality is they still haven't gotten healing over wounds and issues of the past. Number four, This is God's plan for protecting your marriage. When you give yourself to another sexually, you're not only engaging the body, you're not merely engaging the mind, you're not merely going through the motions, you are even embracing the core of who you are. First Corinthians chapter six says it this way. Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two will become one flesh, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Listen to this. So flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And finally, because this is God's plan for procreation. God's plan for your children and mine are to grow up in the context of a committed Christ-honoring marriage. And the majority of us understand that because we've experienced a parent who was absent and missing along the way. Please understand this morning, this does not mean, if you're, man, man, I'm listening, you're listening to that day and you're thinking, man, I messed up a long time ago. I believe lies from the enemy a long time ago. Maybe you shouldn't think, I never had that kind of an example or teaching growing up. Please understand, that doesn't mean if you've missed that mark that you can't experience God's forgiveness and you can't experience a joyful, wonderful, God-glorifying marriage. It does mean this. It does mean if you've not repented of your sin, The quickest thing you need to do is to repent of your sin, get right with the Lord, and accept God's plan for your life, recognizing that it is only through that that your marriage will have the firm foundation that it needs. Secondly, also don't assume that just because you keep those things that your marriage is gonna be what God wants it to be. It takes work, it takes perseverance. We've gotta work to cultivate those things in our life. Jesus and Thyatira confronted the satanic beliefs that led them to all sorts of sexual perversions and loose living. And secondly, I want you to see he confronted their sinful behavior. Kind of building up to that point, right? Wrong beliefs lead to wrong behaviors. If you believe that looking at pornography is no big deal, guess what you're gonna end up doing? Looking at pornography. If you believe that sex outside of marriage is no big deal, everybody's doing it, guess what you're likely to do? You're gonna go right to that. Why? Because our beliefs determine our behavior. And and that's exactly what Jesus does. In verses 20 and verse 22, Jesus then begins to say, because you've accepted these wrong beliefs, these so-called deep things that you're learning, it's leading you to sinful behavior in two sexual ways. Jesus gave two terms. The first term he gives in verse 20 is that he rebuked them for their immoralities. The Greek word there literally is the word porneo. Sounds familiar because that's where we get our English word pornography from. Other translations will translate that word, like the King James, simply as fornication. What it means is sexual things outside of marriage. And Jesus is rebuking that. What he's largely saying in this moment is that Jezebel's teaching in that church captured the imagination of the people. It stirred up images in their mind. It created longings and desires that were largely natural, but they began to seek for ways to fulfill them outside of God's express plan. Then there's a second word. Verse 22, he says the word adultery, which not only means outside of marriage, it means in addition to marriage. So they're pursuing sexual relationships in addition to their own marriages. Those are what Jesus says in verse 22. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying here that everybody in the church was sleeping with this Jezebel. What he is saying is this. There are many in the church that have gotten in bed with this teaching. They've accepted it. So instead of living holy, instead of living for me, they've begun to live for their own pleasures. Oh, they're saying that they love me. They're saying that they're living for me. But the truth is they're living for their own pleasure, sleeping with and doing whatever they want to, all in the name of love. I wanna remind us this morning of something very important. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have been forgiven of your sins. 
you have been cleansed, but you have also been changed and made a brand new creation. Jesus spoke these sobering and serious words to the church. I think it's a powerful reminder for us today that when you've been forgiven and set free out of our love for the Lord Jesus Christ and our devotion to him, we are not to go back to those things. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter six. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Listen to this statement. Such were some of you. That's what you were. That's what you were doing before. Those are the things that were before Christ. But now that you know Christ, you've been set free. You're a new creation. And he goes on, but you were washed. If you know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, you were washed by the blood of Jesus. You were sanctified. You were set apart for the Lord to be a vessel holy unto him. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of God. His whole point is this. You've been changed. You've been forgiven. You've been set free. So live like it today. Finally, Jesus confronts their spiritual betrayal. The simple summary is this. In their immorality, they then turn to idolatry. I want to remind us today that an idol is anyone or anything that takes the place of Jesus in our lives. And it's not difficult to understand. They got so focused on living for themselves and living for their pleasure that they weren't so focused anymore on what Jesus wanted. Much like an addiction, their pursuit of passion and pleasure and sex took all their time, attention, effort, energy, and resources, except for when they came together on Sundays, apparently. This pleasure promised so much joy and fulfillment, but they did not realize it was taking their very lives. The lives of pornography and sex are still doing the same today. It's just a glance. It's just this one time. It's just this one giving in. After all, who's really gonna know about it? But Jesus comes with a simple and sobering reminder that these things are spiritually a betrayal of him. Galatians chapter six says it this way. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Can I just remind you this morning that God is no liar? Sow to the flesh will reap corruption, but if we sow to the Spirit, will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Number three, if you're still with me, would you say all right? Or oh me, I don't know. I want you to see the compassion of Jesus. I gotta move quickly, but I want you to see the compassion of Jesus. When we read these words, they're very sobering, but I want you to see how Jesus responds to this Jezebel. Yes, there's rebuke and there's confrontation and there's conviction, yes, but notice the desire of Jesus as he calls them to repentance. Notice in verse 21, he says, listen, I gave her time to repent. Think of that for just a moment. Think about all the times this woman had taught things that she knew were wrong. Think about all the ways that she had misled people from their devotion to Jesus. Think about all the lives and possibly the marriages and the homes that she ruined and destroyed. Think about all the rubble along the way. And yet what does Jesus say of her? I gave her time to repent. There are times in our life that we are sinning and doing things that we want that we know are not pleasing to the Lord that because God does not judge us immediately, we assume he's okay with. Like if this was really, really bad and God was really opposed to me, like he'd correct me right now immediately. But please understand God's lack of immediate judgment is not his condoning of your sin. It is God and his grace and his mercy giving you opportunity to repent. I gave her time to repent, but what did she do? She hardened her heart. She was arrogant against it. The Bible says literally, and she does not want to repent for her immorality. 
She doesn't want to repent. The word repentance means to turn around. It's a change of mind. It means that she was living her life in this direction. She was teaching things she knew weren't right. She was leading people away from the Lord and people were following this and she refused to turn from her sin and turn to the Savior. In other words, to repent means you're going one direction, going your selfish and sinful way and to repent means you confess it is wrong, you turn from it and you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ to live for him, for his glory, for his purposes and his pleasure. He called them to repentance. Listen to this promise from Acts chapter three, verse 19. Repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. There is refreshing that comes when you and I repent. So he calls them to repent. But secondly, listen, he cautions them of unrepentance. Verse 22. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. Verse 23. I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Hebrews 10, 31 says it this way, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is a sobering picture of what God describes as the judgment he will bring for their refusal to repent of their sin. Some will hear this and think, man, Jesus is harsh. Some will hear this and think, perhaps even that Jesus is not merciful or gracious. Please understand, Jesus is so full of grace and mercy that he literally came to this world. He died on the cross for every sin that this Jezebel committed, every sin that the people were committing, every sin that you've committed, every sin that I've committed. He is full of grace and mercy, offering forgiveness to all of us for every sin we've ever committed. But he is also just. When we are bent on rejecting his grace and mercy, when we are bent on justifying our actions and sins, when we are bent of doing what we want, in his justice, there will likely come a time if we don't repent that he lets us have exactly what we want, a life without him. But that is not his desire. Second Peter chapter three, verse nine says, the Lord is not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but he is patient towards you. He's not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And even as he gives this judgment, even as he paints this picture of what's to come, even still, here's what he says. All this will happen, verse 22, unless they repent of their deeds. John Phillips said it this way, prophecies of doom are usually uttered in hopes that they might never be fulfilled. The Lord would much rather pardon than punish. It's like even still in this moment, Jesus is saying, please repent, please get right, please turn from your sin. I can forgive you, I can set you free, I can make you whole, I can deliver you. But he stands and he waits for them to respond. Final thing I want you to see is the comfort of Jesus. Verse 26 through 28. He who overcomes and who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He'll rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. The comfort of Jesus. There were many people in that church who were listening to the so-called deep things, but those deep things that were leading them away from Jesus, frankly, and robbing them of the blessings and the peace they'd had in obedience to the Lord. And frankly, the church at Thyatira was in a tough place. In their city and in their culture, the people who received the most notoriety, the most recognition, the most praise, happened to be the wicked people. And so the, so the people at the church of Thyatira, they saw, listen, the wicked are prospering over here. They're, they're praised and they're respected and they're commended and look at how they're living. And, and then this false teacher began to enter and teach all these things that were leading them away from the Lord. And, what Jesus is doing is this. He's pointing them back to the truth. Satan has a plan for you. 
Live your life for yourself. Live your life for your pleasure. Live your life experiencing whatever you want to with whoever you want to without cost or consequence. It'll be fulfilling, it'll be awesome, it'll be wonderful, it'll be grand. Jesus, on the other hand, offers eternal life by not living for yourself, but by living for him. Jesus reminds them, I know there's prosperity in this world. I know people are living for themselves, but I'm telling you one day I'm gonna come and I'm gonna rule and reign here in this world and you will rule and reign with me. If you have ears to hear. This world promised all these good things, but frankly, in the end of every one of those selfish and sinful experiences, it led them to a place of emptiness. It led them to a place of brokenness. They weren't fulfilled. They weren't happy. Satan offered all these things, but frankly, all he gave them was darkness, disease, and death. But Jesus says, if you believe, I'll give you the bright and morning star. That reference is a reference to himself because the Bible tells us later in the book of Revelations that Jesus himself is the bright and morning star. Jesus is saying, you can live for the temporary pleasures of this world and in the end be empty, wounded, weary, dark, and broken. Or you can love and live for me and experience eternal life and fulfillment that nothing in this world can offer. But it all boils down to this. You have a personal choice to make. There's Satan's path and your own path, and there's my path. If anyone will hear what the Spirit says of the churches, to him, I'll make him overcome. To him, I'll give eternal life. To him, there will be joy. To him, there'll be fulfillment. At the end of the day, he invites, he pleads. He's done everything possible to allow us to experience his forgiveness, his grace, a glorious hope and a future. But we must say yes to Jesus. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any questions about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.